Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter, handcrafted and meticulously curated by Jeremy Goldhorn and his Crackerjack staff, along, of course, with a great new smartphone app. Uh, make sure to check out the brand new version, uh, as well, as, of course, as, at the website at subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo. I am in the marvelous metropolis of Shanghai this week. I am joined from Beijing by the amazing Ms. Ada Shen, who is taking a break from her constant postings on Facebook in defense of decency, reason, compassion, and democracy to co-host the show with me. How are you, Ada? <laughs> I'm fine, Kaiser. Thank you. I'm about as well as can be expected, considering the uh, political hellscape we are now all living in since the November elections. <laughs> um, very glad to be back on the show. And uh, it's nice to take a break from contemplating the intractable and the difficult situation in the U.S. by turning our gaze instead to a different intractable and difficult situation in China. <laughs> yes, indeed, we are going to. Uh, and that situation is the state of Islam in China and how the Chinese Communist Party state is struggling to manage a very major dilemma when it comes to that religion. Ada, it's great to have you back on the show. We've definitely missed you. This is a fascinating topic. The, the state administration of religious affairs now counts about 21 million Muslims in China, which may be a very low percentage of the overall Chinese population, but it is nevertheless a very substantial population, which is, you know, roughly the size of the city I'm in right now or the size of the city you guys are in in Beijing. Listeners to the show know that there are two main Muslim populations in China, the the Hui, who are said to be descendants of you know, traders from Western Asia who settled in China beginning back in the Tang Dynasty some 1400 years ago, when Islam was still a very young religion and who now live all over the country. While there are many very pious Hui, and you know they tend to practice Sunni Islam, uh, many are also quite assimilated into the Han majority. They aren't really phenotypically different. I mean, they speak the same language, and assimilated Hui don't wear any distinctive garb. Often, uh, they're only discovered by their Han friends to be Hui when they're all dining out. <laughs> anyway, uh, the other large group, of course, are the Uyghurs, who live primarily in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which is a provincial-level region that's roughly the size of the state of Alaska. Uh, Uyghurs, who are a Turkic people, have lived mainly in the oasis towns along the rim of the Tarim Basin for over a thousand years. They speak a Turkic language, and they're usually quite phenotypically distinct from the Han, unlike the, the Hui. Xinjiang was uh, conquered in the 18th century by the expanding Qing Empire, and its problematic inheritance by that empire's successor state, the PRC, has made for you know periodic violence dating back down several decades, uh, but with increased intensity since the July 2009 riots that rocked the city of Urumqi with the capital of Xinjiang, which is now problematically a majority Han city. So Beijing, it seems, has adopted two very different postures toward the same religion of Islam and toward particular sets of teachings and practices within Islam when it comes to the Hui and to the Uyghurs. And that's one thing that, that we're going to be talking about today with our guests. Uh, well, with the Uyghurs, the party has cracked down on even relatively mild outward forms of, of what it sees as fundamentalism, as jihadism, as anything seen as radical, uh, that would connect Uyghurs to sects from outside that it, it, it deems extreme. It has been surprisingly tolerant, I think, of, of Salafism or, or Wahhabism, uh, 
which is, of course, a fundamentalist form of Islam that has actually been observed by some Chinese way from the 19th century. So today we are delighted to be joined by Alice Su, who is a reporter who lived in Beijing until fairly recently and is now based in Amman, Jordan, where she joins us from. Alice wrote a series on Islam in China, uh, mostly last year, spread out across a number of very prestigious publications, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy. Uh, all her pieces can be found conveniently in one place at the PulitzerCenter.org. We'll put up a link to that. Alice Sue, welcome to Seneca. Great to have you. Hi, Kaiser. It's great to be with you today. Hey, so we are also joined from Beijing by Ma Tianjie, who works for the online bilingual environmental publication, China Dialogue, but who is uh, with us in the capacity of wise interpreter of Chinese public opinion. Uh, he writes the indispensable public opinion blog, and he's someone we just love having on the show. Uh, a few weeks back, Tianjie wrote a fascinating piece about uh, rising Islamophobia in China. He didn't actually call it that, but oh, I'm going to call it that. And specifically on the, the vicious backlash online to a new proposal uh, that is clearly meant to curb Islamophobia. That would punish people who who insult religious beliefs. So, Tianjie, welcome back to Seneca. Hi, Kaiser. Hi, Alice. Very great to be on the show again. We would great to have you back. So, Tianjie, I want to begin uh, by talking about this phenomenon of the online backlash that you wrote about. Given the relatively small population of Muslims in China, relative, of course, to the Han majority, uh, it hardly seems a threat to the dominance of Han political or cultural ascendancy, right? So, but in this piece that you wrote about on your blog, uh, titled The Atheist Manifesto, you talk about a very heated online reaction to what you describe as a recent revision of a low-level administrative regulation aimed at maintaining social order. I mean, this should have just been a very ordinary kind of policy, but instead, it elicited quite a controversy. And interestingly, you don't talk about this reaction as being Islamophobia, per se. Can you tell us a little bit about what this draft amendment was? Why did it create the fuss that it did? And and why don't you call that? Or why did you avoid that term? Mm. So I, I was maybe a bit inaccurate in describing it as a low-level regulation. Actually, it is a law, but actually it regulates low-level violations, right? So anything that doesn't pass the threshold of the criminal code, right? Is regulated by this uh, this law. So it's all kinds of nuisance, right? The minor uh, violations. So in this draft revision of this law called Zhang Guanli Chu Fa Fa, then there's this article that was being added, or there's one item in the article that's being added that touches on the so-called religious insult, right? So if you are, you insult a religion uh, either on in a publication or on on the internet, then you you might be subject to a detainment, uh, right? So it's not you are not going to be criminally charged, but you are still being punished for like being detained for like up to fifteen days, right? Something like that. And this revision has triggered a quite heated kind of fight back, right, from a community on Chinese social media which has been quite actively criticizing Islam for quite a long time. Uh, it's a cluster of people and, and opinion leaders who have been doing that for a long time. And they clearly see this new regulation as sort of a gag order, right, on their right to continue to criticize uh, Islam, even though the, the regulation doesn't specify that this is mean to protect right, Islam from being criticized. Uh, but they, they, they see it as that way, and they got mobilized, and they start to collect petitions right, to the authority to say that you, you shouldn't add this clause into it. And their argument is that China is a secular society for a long time, right? And over the, the past hundred years, like there are novels, there are uh, all kinds of like literature that's ridiculing religion, criticizing it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great tradition of the Chinese society, right? They are not like bound by the so-called political correctness, right? In, in, in what they see it in Western society. And they see it as sort of an asset, right, of the Chinese society to keep religion in check, right? And they are not shy in saying that atheism is sort of part of the, the party ideology, right? And, and you should be proud of that, right? And not like incorporate this kind of so-called political correctness, right, when, when, when it comes to religion. That's very, very interesting. I mean, there are a lot of parallels, I think, that we'll talk about that, the things that may be happening in the United States. Um, I want to turn to Alice first and talk about uh, some of the things that have been happening. I mean, I've read a number of articles about this anti-Muslim rhetoric that we've been seeing. Tianjie rightly says has been happening for quite a while now, uh, including really recently about uh, one about three Hui Muslim girls from Yunnan 
uh, in the southwest of China who were attacked online uh, for a WeChat channel, which just showed photos of them wearing the hijab. They had a, a channel that basically was was you know showing photos of, of fashionably dressed Hui uh, Muslim women wearing hijabs. Uh, I also recently saw a photo that was circulating with uh, some sign. I think it was in a government office that designated an area as as off limits to Han and reserved for Muslims only. And people, you know, commenting on on Weixin were very very upset. Apparently, I guess uh, to me that felt like complaining about handicapped parking lots or or handicapped spaces. But uh, what have been some of the things that aggrieved Islamophobes have gotten all twisted up in a rage over? I mean, what's your and is your sense that there, this is a growing uh, kind of sentiment among Han Chinese? Well, I think I have to answer this question different parts, depending on who you're talking about in terms of Han Chinese. So uh, last year when I was doing my reporting, I spent a lot of time in these Hui majority areas, you know, small towns in Yunnan or in Gansu, Ningxiang, so on. But I also also was living in Beijing. So if if we split the response, I think think for a normal average Chinese person living in a big city like Beijing or Shanghai, people, they might be a little bit Islamophobic, but it's it's based more out of ignorance than out of anything. I was at I was spending some time at Beida last year and I remember really clearly uh, when the Paris attacks happened, a lot of my friends were telling me, We're really scared, you know, this this is, you spent time because I had been living in the Middle East before going to Beida, so there people were asking me, is Islam in, intrinsically linked to terror and so on? And one of my professors even told me he said there was someone on Beida faculty who said uh, in one of their staff meetings who came up to him, approached him because he's a specialist in um, Middle Eastern studies and Islam and asked him uh, is Islam linked to violence? Is there actually something to teaching? So I think I think a lot of people, writ large in China, they they just find Islam a very very foreign thing, a very scary not not scary but just unknown thing. We don't know what it is, uh, and it you know we don't have any contact with it in our daily lives. And now, given the global context with the I guess rising spate of terror attacks, uh, with ISIS in existence and so on, the mainstream narrative in the Chinese mindset oftentimes it piggybacks off of the Western narrative, uh, which may or may not be a good thing. Actually, I don't think it's a good thing. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So, so by contrast with these people in, in Beijing and in Shanghai, you actually do have quite a bit of exposure and quite a bit of experience. I mean, not only having lived in the Middle East, but you actually speak Arabic and you've studied Middle Eastern politics extensively. Yeah. Uh, I guess that, that bears pointing out. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about how did you get interested in Arabic and, and in, in studying Islam? Oh, <laughs> sure. I mean, I mean, that's actually an interesting thing to point out because actually the first time I went to Xinjiang was not last year. The first time I went to Xinjiang was when I was 15 years old um, mm, and wow. I was attending Shanghai American School, um, international school, <laughs> international school in, in China. And we had these China Alive trips. I remember really vividly that I went and I spent a week in Xinjiang on this kind of Silk Road trip and it was kind of to expose us to uh, different parts of China and I just remember being very confused <laughs> because at that time I also had no exposure um, to Islam or to the Islamic world or to this you know uh, to the to the Middle East or Central Asia I just remember like getting off the the plane and being in Urumuti and then going to the souk to the market and seeing all these people and I was thinking like what wait they're not Chinese wait <laughs> are we in China <laughs> and that was my thought and I I'm a, you know, I'm Taiwanese American. Um, you know, I I was at international school, so I was, you know, reading the news and learning about outside things besides China. But even I was really confused. And I remember I spent the whole week in Xinjiang, but I came away not really clear about who the Uyghurs were. I just knew there were these people who didn't look like my concept of Chinese people, and they spoke a different language, and they had this script that looked like Arabic, but it wasn't Arabic. <laughs> and I was really confused back then. So I mean, you ended up majoring in in Middle Eastern studies, or or what did you study? Yeah. In? Oh, so later. Later on, later on, um, I was at Princeton. I was studying public policy and international affairs, and basically, I was in university when the Arab Spring happened, and that really triggered my curiosity towards the Arab world. So halfway through university, I took a shift. I started learning Arabic. Uh, I went to Morocco. I ended up doing a thesis on soft power competition between China and the U.S. in Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, trying to look at yeah, just kind of out there. That's why I'm happy about this podcast because. My interests are really obscure, and usually people aren't interested in um, this intersection. <laughs> well, we certainly are. Um, <laughs> so you, okay. you you were talking about the contrast between the the, uh, the Chinese in big cities right. now, but what about in these Muslim areas, right? Heavily Muslim areas like in Ningxia and Gansu. Yeah. So so what I wanted to say, yeah, was yeah. So a lot of I think 
mainstream just Chinese people in the big cities they're just right. they just don't know anything about Islam and they, it's very foreign and they think it's scary it seems to be linked to terror um, in a lot of areas like uh, like in in Yunnan and also in in Gansu for example in Lanzhou there's a really significant uh, minority community and I found that every place I went where there were a lot of Muslim minorities I would hear from Han people they would say like don't go to that area of town uh, don't go to don't go to Xiaoxihu in Lanzhou because and I say why and they say because there's a lot of Xiaoxu Minzu there uh, there's a lot of these ethnic minorities which you know I, I would say okay but why shouldn't I go because there's a lot of minorities and there was always kind of this stereotype I guess uh, where they would think minority people are linked, they're dangerous, like you're gonna get robbed there, uh, there's a lot of crime, just be careful. Um, it's kind of like the way people talk about, you know, certain neighborhoods of big cities in the U.S. Like, don't go there, you know, don't go past the <laughs> yeah, street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sounds very much like you know, that. You know, something will happen to you. Yeah, so that was the that was the way that people people talked about it. And then, mm. and then if you want to talk about Uyghurs and people from Xinjiang, there's a huge stereotype against them. I think no matter where you go in China, where it's just kind of like, I don't know if you guys know about the yeah, Chegal yeah. story. Well, so maybe you can unpack that a little bit. Chigal is, is this uh, sort of yeah. nut cake, kind yeah, of uh, so the Chinese equivalent of, of fruit cake. Uh, but, sorry, it's, what it's is that? But amazing. I actually don't it's know the story. Stuff, what is the story about Chigal? Basically, there's this this trope, this like common um, stereotype of uh, Xinjiang people, which is, well, first of all, it's true that a lot of people, Uyghurs who are migrants who come to the big cities, they sell these Chigal right. on the streets, right? And these big carts. Yeah, these big push carts, right. And the idea is like, the idea is like, if you go and and you want to buy some, like they'll tell you the certain price for it, but then once they cut it for you, that it's going to be a lot more because they didn't tell you that that price is per a certain amount of weight, and then it's actually like a lesser amount of weight. And basically, you're gonna they're gonna charge you a lot, but then if you get angry and say like I don't want to pay that much, they'll like take a, they'll like take a knife and attack you, or like you're gonna have to buy it no matter what because they're backed up by you know their gangs of other Uyghurs, and it's it's like. Basically, you shouldn't you shouldn't buy tigal from them because it might be risky for you or or you're gonna get scammed. This is this is just what I, I heard from people uh, when I was living in Beijing. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the stereotype among Han Chinese about Uyghurs in particular reminds me a lot about in European cities about the Roma mm. about the, what yeah. used to be called gypsies. Gypsies, yeah, yeah. It's very very yeah. So basically, there's a lot of conflation of uh, basically. These people, they're they're Muslim, and then also they're a minority, and basically they're just they're different, so they're dangerous. And also, we've heard a lot. Of, there's a lot of rumors and stories about crime and distrust. So that's kind of on the local level, right. and then on the internet level, which I think is a whole another world, which is why I think Tianjie's piece is really interesting. <laughs> I wanted to ask him a question, but maybe I can ask. Please him. go no, ahead. Please feel free. I mean, <laughs> oh okay. Well, I'll ask him after this. This quick. I, I want to say this one quick story, which is that I was in Najiaying, a really small Muslim town, <laughs> like Muslim majority town uh, in Yunnan. It's close to Shadian, which is a which is where which is okay. Well, I'll tell you about Shadian later. <laughs> but so Najiaying is a really interesting place because it's mostly Hui, uh-huh. and a lot of the streets there's this like main street through the town, and when you walk down the street, there are all these signs just stuck on on the walls, and there are all these kinds of like sayings from the Quran or Hadith, and they're all kind of these moral imperatives and it's like you should respect and honor your father and mother with like a verse from the Quran <laughs> um, or like you should keep the streets clean with a verse from the Quran whatever and uh, so I was with this local guy there and I was asking him what are what are these signs and he said yeah these signs actually they're an initiative by the the local government like the this village level government they decided that since we're mostly Hui and people really respect these kind of things and we want to beautify the city and exhort people to be good citizens we put up these signs but then what happened later on was that someone, maybe a Han tourist or somebody coming through the town, saw them, took a bunch of pictures of them, put them on the internet, and you know wrote a bunch of stuff. I was like, look, you know, look, look at what's happening. You know, China is becoming Islamicized. I think there's this fear of Islam, this scary thing, is going to come and take over our streets. And they even put Quran on the streets. And then there was just tons and tons of just like angry responses from random people on the internet, Chinese people on the internet. And then later on, what happened was that in response to that, the local, I don't know if it was like the local party officials or the just the local officials, they said like, okay, yeah, we recognize like this, 
this may be like, you know, it's not in line with our party principles or whatever. So they changed some of the signs, but they only changed, they didn't change the signs on the street. They changed the signs inside the local government office. And so, and this guy that I was with, he was some kind of youth representative. So he took me in and he showed me like in the building, if you walk into the building, they, they have all these Confucian and Taoist sayings. And he's like, yeah, so these are new. But then when you walk out of the building and you walk down the street, they have these like Quran signs. And basically that was what they did to appease the, appease the internet. Um, but oh, I think it, it reflects a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and he told me from, from the people's perspective, they actually really liked the signs. And he said, I think this is a good thing that the, you know, authorities did for us. It reflects their in touch, you know, CADT, like they're, they yeah. know what, what mm-hmm. we care yeah. about, what we like. But then on the internet, people freaked out and they're like, this is, what is, what is it? Like the party is turning green, <laughs> the color of Islam, something like that. Um, yeah, so, like, yeah, they call them, you know, hatefully <laughs> call them the greens, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I mean, you wanted to ask Kindia something, right? Oh, yeah. Kindia, I was just really curious because um, you said that the posts uh, or the petitions are mainly by a specific group of people. Yeah. So, I mean, who are these people? Are they, do they, are they people who have backgrounds where they were, like, they, they had bad experiences with religion? Or are they community leaders? Or just, like, who, who are they in, in real life? I think it's a it's a mixture of people, uh, and uh, there are like I mentioned this professor Shi Shi Wei who who has probably nothing to do with the present, but she <laughs> she is actually actually a Marxist scholar, right? Based in CAS, right, the Chinese Academy of Social Science, and who is dedicated to mm. what she described as scientific atheism, right? She studies atheism and she does studies religion, um, and so her criticism of Islam is is at least on the surface, purely from an sort of an atheist point of view. And she's mm. always like sounding alarm about this so-called Islamization, right, of certain Chinese communities. Mm. And um, she's sort of defending the, the sort of secular culture of, of China, uh, as, as I have mentioned before. But besides her, there are clearly like Han Supremist, right? There are like a, a bunch of yeah. us Han Supremist uh, accounts on Weibo, mm. um, something like... Mm. Uh, Da Han, something, something, Da Han, right? So you can yeah. clearly see that they're... We're called great chauvinists, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. supremists. And there are like traditional nationalists, right? Um, who are more like conservative in their values. Uh, and there are just, uh, as you random people just joining them, probably they, 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 they just uh, fear something that they don't know uh, very well. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's interesting that you, you point this out. There are a lot of parallels then to the United States because... Aside from conservative Christians who feel like their own religious traditions are under threat in America, you also have secular liberals who are often very strident atheists. Like, you know, there's this comedian talk show host who's very popular in America named Bill Maher. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. I'm a big fan of Bill Maher. Uh-huh. Yeah, but, you know, he, he, is <laughs> that, he has that, that same streak. And then, you know, his, his buddy yeah. uh, Sam Harris, who's one of the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse, the, the four horsemen of the new atheism. So it's interesting that, uh, that they have kind of a parallel here mm-hmm. with the, the Professor Xi that you were t- talking about. Since we're touching on sort of parallels with America, it, it it does seem like there are, and this thing about sort of online Islamophobia kind of getting ahead of steam, if you will, or flaring up. You know, the American president has been really whipping up uh, populist, you know, ethno-nationalism and, and kind of anti-immigrant and anti-Islamic rhetoric, uh, you know, since he began campaigning, and he really hasn't debated uh, even since becoming president. How much do you think uh, this is a connection to or is, is helping to create an environment of permissibility, even in China? Like, is there, do you see a connection there? I mean, you, you touched on it in your article, but um, how much is, is this emboldening uh, people, you think, in China? Uh, I think that's a great question, I mean, because it's interesting. I see a lot of that connection. Uh, maybe Tianjin and Alice can, mm-hmm. can comment on that because it seems like, you know, the same people who are decrying the kind of political correctness of the, the Baizuo, the white left that, that Tianjin, you've written about before, mm-hmm. uh, are, are reacting really viciously against Islam, right? Yes, yeah, so I think a lot of the narratives about uh, Islam uh, is is actually imported right from the kind of narratives that are now popular in 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 the Western countries, and I think the the election of Donald Trump, mm. uh, as I I think I, I mentioned before, so I, there's a, he's very popular right in China, mm. particularly on the internet, and it's not because 
of self-interest considerations, right? People people don't consider him as benefiting China to some extent, but rather they see him as a validation, right, of their values, right? So all of a sudden, oh, it's it's okay, yeah, it's oh okay God. to be openly like xenophobia, right? So like after the election of Trump, you see very popular. Posts on Zhuhu,、uh, which is the equivalent of Quora, right, saying that yeah, I think we we should actually reduce immigrants.、Uh, we feel more safe if if we have more、uh, people who look like us, right, on the street, right,、uh, and they are not just、uh, targeting Islams. They are also very concerned with the African、mm. uh, uh, community, right, in Guangzhou,、oh, in the streets、sure. of Guangzhou. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that recently. They don't feel、that. safe, right, in the street anymore, and things like that. And then people feel、yeah. that it's now okay because, right, you have the U.S. president who is saying. Basically the same thing. Why? Why can I? Right. It, it, this is the kind of value that's that's vindicated and and validated. Yeah. Alice, has any of that come up in in the work that you've done? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just thinking.、Uh, I mean, for for one thing, yeah, for sure, I, I know about the pushback against Guangzhou,、uh, against the Africans in Guangzhou, and I spent some time there as well. And it was kind of the same thing, where people said, "Don't go to Shaoshu, means area, minority areas, other places." In Guangzhou, it was like, "Don't go to the place with all the black people," <laughs> and you know, it's because you know it's dangerous, blah blah blah. But I'm thinking that. Uh, the people who would really push back against that would be would be the Hui, because I feel that I mean it's apparent a, a lot of times people are Chinese people I think are xenophobic against people who who look different right and there's just a sense of yeah you you don't belong here because you're not Chinese and and we know what Chinese is because you know we have our strong great glorious Han Chinese culture and blah 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 but a lot of Hui I mean the thing about the Hui is that they're virtually indistinguishable from Han Chinese they look. The same, right, right. <laughs>、um, and they speak the same language, and they have so many of the same traditions. And the thing about, and I think a lot of Hui people that I met, and actually it was interesting because a lot of places that I went, I would look for, I would, I would basically, I would go to these WeChat groups <laughs> with a bunch of like these basically Muslim WeChat groups and just. Uh, meet people and then say like, oh, I, I want to, I want to talk to people about, you know, what is it like to be a minority? You know, how do you understand Islam and your identity? And then、uh, in in Kunming in particular, there there's a bunch of just like really active Hui guys, and they're all really involved in their communities. They're like they own restaurants, they're teachers, they're volunteers, whatever. And they got together this whole group to like have a discussion with me and tell me all these things about why they're like they, they are Chinese, and they wanted to emphasize this to me. They're like we're we are. We're an ethnic, we're a minority, but we're still Chinese. Like we're very Chinese, and、um, and and in fact, in in Hui history, there are、um, this whole history of of prominent、um, Hui figures, like、uh, this、Jehua. guy named Liu Zhi in the 18th century.、Mm-hmm. Yeah,、uh, not so Liu Zhi. This、oh. guy he wrote this thing called Han Kitab. You know, kitab means book in Arabic. So he wrote this book called,、uh, and they say it, the way they pronounce it is like Han Kitabu. <laughs> But、um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically, it's like a, it's a blending. It's an intentional scholarly blending of Islam with Confucianism, and and they would write these scholarly texts about why. About basically how Islam matches with Chinese、uh, concepts. So, for example, they would draw connections between the Prophet and the idea of being a sage, and they would talk about harmonious relationships in Islam that co- correspond to harmonious relationships in Confucianism, and and just a lot of like, for for centuries, many Hui have been trying to blend Chineseness with Islam, and so they would push back. and And I also remember I was talking to these Hui guys in Yunnan, and I was asking them about One Belt One Road. Because it seemed to me like, oh, maybe this is a place where the government can really use the minorities、mm-hmm. because you guys are Muslim. And oh, is, wouldn't it be a great idea if you know、uh, if the party was sending Kuwait representatives of China to these Middle Eastern countries and building connections and talking with them? And then they just all laughed. I mean, they're like, what? And I asked them, you know, do you do you have do you see that kind of outreach coming towards you? You know, from the government? Maybe you know they want to you know raise up the minority voice. Like I think it, it's just my idea. I think. Give you a great idea, <laughs> and two things they said to me. One guy he said he said okay one belt one road. He's like you came from Beijing, so like well, whatever. <laughs> like one belt. <laughs> he's like one belt one road. <laughs> yeah, he's like one belt one road. It's 天上走的政策 It's like it's like a policy that's up in the sky, and we're here on the ground.、Mm. Like basically, it didn't have anything to do with them. They felt very removed from it. I think especially in Yunnan, like on the,、uh, maybe in Ningxia, it would be a lot more. But and the other thing they said was there was they said. Like Shaozu Minzu, they said we really want to help the government, but the government will not trust us. Like Shaozu Minzu, 很想要帮助政府，可是政府
不信任我们。Like, yeah, this is all. Like, they they said basically, like that's a nice idea, but as much as basically we're we're we feel Chinese, we we are Chinese, you know, but we're being treated kind of as a we're cut we're treated as kind of these half foreign half foreigners. So, so Tianjie, I have a question for you. Do you think we're seeing popular anti-Islamic sentiment in China directed at the religion that is at both the Hui and the Uyghurs, or is it more because of ethnicity? You know, therefore, maybe focus more on Uyghurs who are more ethnically distinct.、Mm. And do you think this gets conflated with separatism and and terrorism?、Mm. So, my observation is that they seems to be targeting more at religion than ethnicity. So they are in general like very critical of Islam in general, and and I haven't seen like specific, especially online, I haven't seen specific attack on Uyghurs, right? They they are not anti-Uyghurs, they are anti-Islam, and a lot of the the examples and case they they give right about the threat of Islamization is in places like Shadian that Alice just mentioned or. In Lingxia, right, which is in Ningxia Province, so these are outside Xinjiang, and these are generally places where the I think the party policy towards Islam and religion is more lenient, right, in that aspects, which makes them feel more threatened. I think there's also a strategic consideration in this because、uh, if you say you are you are you are targeting ethnicity, then actually. It's it's very hard to argue that, right? But if you say I'm I'm just targeting religion,、mm. then you can actually piggyback on the party's atheist kind of ideology and collect all the legitimacy, right? So I think these elements added together, and I think it's more、uh, become it it more become targeted towards Islam, the religion, rather than certain ethnicity, at least online for for those group of opinion leaders online, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the, the hiding behind that. I mean, again, the parallels here. It maybe a little bit like anti-Semites who say, "No, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm only anti-Zionist." <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not. Anyway,、um, <laughs> well, let's talk about what what can be actually done about this.、Though. I mean.、Uh, My distinct sense is that、um, in some areas the party is 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 recognizing that you know religion can be a very important force for social stability, but you know there are a lot of contradictions, double standards in play where、uh, Buddhism maybe gets a little more favorable treatment and Christianity less.、Uh, Islam, you know, coddled. Some people would say in some areas and others. But what do you think that the party can actually do to to kind of tamp down Islamophobic sentiment in China?、Uh, we've seen how effectively it can be. It deals with things, other forms of of nativist hate. It can kind of you know open and shut the valves to serve their own ends when it comes to Japan, or they certainly can fling it wide open when it comes to South Korea, as we've seen recently over that. Do you think that coercive tools like internet censorship might help in the case of Islam?、Uh, Tianjie, why don't you take a crack at that first, and then Alice? Sure. I think there are two traditions in the the party's approach to religion. That is at play here. One of of course is its attitude towards separatism, right, terrorism,、uh, jihadism. That is sort of destabilizing a, a place like Xinjiang. But the other part is again a, a strong tradition of so-called united front, right. So building political alliance,、mm. uh, right, across religion, across ethnicity, just to. 团结一切可以团结的力量 Unite whatever, right? You can unite, right? So this, right? yeah. So this is again、mm. a very strong tradition in the party's thinking about how you like put the difference aside and and unite this country. Right. So I think this is still a, a lively right element in the party. And again,、uh, I've seen that in inside the party there has been some uneasiness right towards this attack on on Islam,、mm. and there has been some. Attempts try try to temper or try try to control right this kind of you are seeing for example、uh, opinion pieces published in Global Times right、uh, mm. attacking particularly people like Xi Wei、uh, mm. Professor Xi Wei、uh, saying that they are exaggerating the kind of so called、mm. spread of Islam in places like Yunnan and and Ningxia、uh, right it's not that serious、uh, and the party should not be misled right by these people. And recently, I think there's a very interesting development. An- another opinion piece, I, I think, being published by Zhongguo Minzubao, Chinese Ethnicity News, which is run、mm. by the, the the party's ministry, basically of of ethnicity, and calling them radical atheists. Right. So、um, <laughs> they, they they're basically、wow. arguing that the the party's ideology of atheism is moderate. Right. It, it also accommodates right religious beliefs and and try to so, sort of. 
unite them in, in this it's united so front uh, and these radical atheists <laughs> are actually alienating right a lot of the uh, the ethnic minorities and and creating creating a, a fissure within the society at a moment when we're pushing through a, a, a initiatives like one bell one road right? right so you can see that actually the party is responding to this uh, kind of uh, sentiments online yeah yeah so let's talk about about party responses to this and and something that alice you've you've written about quite a bit about the the very different treatment that certain religious forms like let's like Salafism, for example, and when it comes to the Uyghurs on the one hand and on the Hui, uh, with the Hui, it, it, it's quite it's treated quite differently. We can talk about what measures have been put in place in Xinjiang a little bit, but let's first look at the more tolerant attitude towards certain conservative flavors of Islam in heavily Hui areas. Uh, do you sense that the authorities in charge of religious affairs are doing this deliberately? Uh, and how do they explain or justify the, the different treatment? I mean, is this really about the money that they're getting from, you know, Saudi Arabia and from other wealthy Gulf states? Or what's going on here? I don't think it's about, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's my place to speculate about if it's money that they're getting from, if, if Saudi is paying China to, to allow Salafism to infiltrate um, in or they not. Are, they are building mosques and madrasas, right? They are spending money there, right? They're, well, let's see. Well, the king was just recognized as an honorary graduate of Beida um, <laughs> that has funded a library there um, in Beijing. So there's that. <laughs> Actually, it's really interesting. Last year when I was at PKU, I spent a lot of time in the Muslim canteen uh-huh. where all the minority students were eating and also just a lot of exchange students. And there was a lot of gossip about the Saudi library that's being built at PKU. And a lot of the gossip was saying, you know, there, you know, there's this library that's being funded by the Saudi king, but they want to have a reading room in there where they can play whatever materials they want and the Beida administration is saying no like you cannot put everything anything that you want in there we're gonna control ah, what's in there and <laughs> that was just gossip though I don't it's, it's, it's gossip I don't know if it's true or not what I do know is that the library is moving forward and that the king was just honored <laughs> university <laughs> so there's that Actually, when I went to do my reporting, I did have this idea in my mind of, you know, how is the Chinese state dealing with, you know, this encroaching spread of Salafism? Is it a threat? Is it dangerous? You know, like, are there, is, you know, when I go to these areas, am I going to find, you know, am I going to be able to find these preachers coming in from Gulf states and talk to them? Mm. I didn't find any. I didn't find any foreigners huh. <laughs> anywhere. Uh, almost no foreigners, except for this one Russian PhD guy in Shadian. But that's not important. Like um, were, right? Yeah, he was, he was doing, he was, he was doing research. I I didn't actually find any uh, people who were in China to proselytize and so on, but I did meet a lot of people who had gone and studied in Saudi Arabia or in Egypt, but more more in Gulf states, and they had come back. Uh, yeah, I remember and, in that China file piece, you said they were sort of the, the people who were most critical of the mainstream Hui religious practices, right? I mean, they yeah. were some of the, 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 the most reformist in the Hui community, right? These yeah. returnees. Yeah. But they're still in the minority, right, among the Hui. They're not, I mean, what are they, about 20% of the Hui? Or is this, has this number, yeah, has this number <laughs> you don't know. changed? Yeah, you don't know. Okay. <laughs> I tried to find that number. He does no number for okay. The thing about Hui Islam is it's so fragmented. There are mm. so many different sects. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, there are, there are a few major ones. There's Gadimu, which is the, the oldest mainstream uh, Hui Islam. And Gadimu comes from Gadim in Arabic, which means old <laughs> so that's the mainstream one and then there's there's a bunch of reformed there's a ihawani which is kind of a play off of ikhwan which mm-hmm. is actually muslim brotherhood which is it means brother but ihawani is kind of a reformist a little bit more strict more fundamentalist sect and then there's the sufis and a bunch of different branches of sufism uh-huh. um, and then there's the salafis which the kind of the nickname people use in a sort of derogatory way is santai for a Salafi, and it means you know you you lift your hand three times. I, I believe that's that's why they use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the distinctions between these groups are really minuscule. Like sometimes it's just like one group believes that you should pray really loudly with like a really loud voice, and another group says no, you should be quiet. Um, or another group one is like how many times you should lift your hands in prayer, the positioning, blah blah, like a lot of things. And actually, I think this is interesting because it's very Chinese. Or um, <laughs> is that it's it, a lot of things are about the details of the ritual and the ritual is really important um, the way that you perform things and people will, will disagree with each other on, and because of disagreement they'll split but another reason why a lot of a lot of people push back uh, against China, a lot of a lot of Hui reformers within Hui Islam will push back against uh, overly cynicized uh, Islam is because they, they, they see it as impure 
For example, in Ninja, actually, I went, which is which is a really, really, really big. Uh, it's not big; it's small, but it's really overly saturated with mosques. It's a it's a Hui town that has, you know, it has the biggest Salafi mosque in China, and it has just a lot of representation from the different sects. And I went to a bunch of Sufi shrines. They, they're called Gongbei, and it's kind of it's the it's the tomb of a holy person uh -huh. where people were you know they were burning incense. And people told me that you know they would come, they burn incense, and they'll and they'll even like kowtow when they pray and kowtow to this person um, <laughs> who's buried there. And that's something that just you know it's. I mean, for for me coming from the Middle East, it's like what you can't do that. <laughs> That's not Islam. <laughs> like, how can you do that? <laughs> but then, like, it's a it's a you know, and I even and there was one uh, there was one place with a where there was like some tree where they said it was like a sacred tree and people would burn incense in front of it. But it was part of this Islamic Sufi shrine. But you can see why a lot of uh, a lot of people, a lot of Hui, who perhaps you know they would go to Saudi, they would go somewhere, they would study, they would. They would study. They would immerse themselves in what they saw as a more authentic tradition because you know it's it's in Arabic and it's here. It's in the country where Mecca is. And then they would come back to China and they would say, "Oh, what is this? There's like so many Chinese practices that are mixed in with the religion. It's impure. We need to cleanse it. We need to go back to to a pure form of Islam." But there's there's very little <laughs> um, government interference in any of of this uh, Salafism, right? Yeah, no, that's that's all. It's internal, and it's and I want, I want to emphasize too, like it's not just Salafism. That's that uh, yeah. that is a split off of uh, Hui Islam, but Hui Islam just itself is very fragmented. Even for example, within the Suf within within the Sufis, there are many different branches, and they they a lot of them hate each other and and fight and and have fought violently in the past, and and so it's complicated. Like on the one hand, some people sometimes uh, branches split off because you know this is claim of you're too Chinese or like this is this is not pure. Sometimes it's an, a matter of. Uh, of corruption, and I and I found this also really interesting in uh, Lanzhou when I went to this one very very huge, just like huge. It wasn't a mosque; it was a shrine. Mm -hmm. um, it was also a Sufi a Sufi tomb for a, a holy person, and it's really interesting. Like, the place he's buried, it has like this eight sided pagoda on top of it. I was like, what? It just looks really Chinese. It looks really <laughs> Taoist or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I remember the guy showing me around. He was pointing out like all these pieces of art around and he's like, oh, look at this big engraving of a dragon. He's like, do you know what this means? And I said, oh, I don't know. I mean, dragon is it like, it's, it's very powerful. You know, he's like, yeah, it means like ultimate power. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So does that, is that like power for God or, you know, power for Allah? And he's like, no, <laughs> this, this dragon is here to show the power of, you know, the rich people who run the shrine and how they're really corrupt and they you know like they just take money from you know poor rural people who are uneducated but very devout like these grandmas who are like hui grandmas who will give them money and they say okay give me give me 300 rmb and i'm gonna say a prayer for you and then he just like went on this rant about how he's like they're so corrupt they're not even really muslim wow. <laughs> i was like what how do you, what? They're not really Muslim. What are you saying? So there's so sometimes there's there's this kind of corruption thing. That's why people split. Mm. There was also a young college graduate that I met in where was he in Lanzhou, and he was telling me, for example, he said his grandma was he's he's Hui. His grandma was from a Sufi tradition, but he was telling me he's like I just don't understand like the, what my grandmother believes. I don't like she. I ask her questions about Islam, and mm. she can't answer any of my questions. Like I ask her questions about the Quran, she does not have she does not like read the Quran or like know anything about it. But every morning she wakes up and she prays and she like cries every day. She has like a huge pile of tissues every day from crying. I was like okay, so she has this very this very spiritual kind of faith. And he's like yeah, but also when I was young when I was sick she would go to the Gongbei go to the Laurentia that's what they call the kind of like their their leaders the Laurentia and she would you know give them money and ask them to stay and pray for me and then she would come home with some blessed piece of paper and she would burn it and like grind it into water and force me to drink it and when I got older I just realized like that doesn't make any sense and there's nothing about that in the Quran and <laughs> I don't think it's Islam right. <laughs> I was thinking like oh people in Taiwan do that <laughs> like uh, Buddhist <laughs> people do that <laughs> but like it's, it's a Chinese thing drink water drink burned water yeah. um, good old syncretic anyway. Chinese religion yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wow. it's it's very mixed in. And for this guy, this young guy um, in his in his early twenties, mm. he told me he had done us. He had done. He had spent his summer studying at an Ihawani mosque in Lanzhou, which it wasn't his the mosque his parents went to or his grandma, but he chose to go there himself because he thought, okay, they're reformed and they're they're probably closer. They're more orthodox, and I think I can understand my religion better here. Even though his grandma was angry at him, but like he didn't care. He was gonna go. 
So, yeah, so people, people split for all kinds of reasons. Oh, and, and going back to the government thing, yeah, I think a lot of these splits are happening just kind of internally without any interference mm. from, from the state. And, and when I asked people about this, when I asked Hui people about this uh, in northwestern China, I mean, one guy said something, that, said something that really, really stuck with me. He was saying, he was saying you know, I think, I think uh, the government has really good policy for minorities because basically they want to preserve stability. So they want us to be happy. And so they let us kind of manage our own affairs as long as we don't make trouble for others. And we don't, as long as we're not upset because there's a big number of us here. And then he said, you know, even sometimes, sometimes there'll be things like maybe some, there's, a, there's a piece of land or an apartment building and pe- Hui people are living in it and the government wants to wants to you know demolish it or take it and you know whatever confiscate land and do something and the mosque or the religious leaders will stand up for us and they'll say oh that land belongs to the mosque even if it doesn't belong to the mosque the government will let them have it (laughs) i was like what and he said he said yeah it's great because they kind of they stand up for our interests and then I said, I said, well, don't you think that's corruption? And isn't that uh, kind of something that's, that's not you know, honest? Corruption and, in, in the service um, <laughs> of social stability, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and he said, he said, you know, it is corruption, but it's good for the government because he said this. Um, he said, if you give us a visible enemy, like if police come and start harassing the Hui, he's like, then we'll all unite and we'll fight back. He said, but if you give us an invisible enemy, like selfishness mm. and greed, then then we're split and we're weak and we're not going to challenge the authority. Wow. And so it's good for them. <laughs> well, let's turn now in the last few minutes here uh, to to, you know, to the West, to, to Xinjiang and the situation there. Alice, um, so we've alluded to the fact that Beijing is really eager to draw attention to connections between radical Islamic groups like the Al-Qaeda-affiliated IMU, the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, or, or ISIS on the one hand, and then Uyghur, Uyghur separatists on the other. Uh, what's a fair way to look at those ties? I mean, it doesn't seem to be that, that they're entirely invented. Um, and at the same time, I have really strong suspicions that they're being exaggerated to justify the very heavy-handed approach in Xinjiang. What's your, what's your sense of that? Yeah, well... <laughs> In the first place, I'll say that there there is documentation that for sure there are Uyghurs who are part of these who are part of extremist groups who are in Syria, and and there are publications that you can see online, especially if you follow a lot of these kind of um, you know terrorism analytics sites that uh-huh. monitor everything that because they're really active on social media. So if you if you monitor if you follow these sites, you can see publications that are coming from extremist groups affiliated with IS or with Al Qaeda. And there are publications that have said that that are targeting China, and also that are uh, writing about kind of you know the, the tears of Uyghur mothers and and writing about the plight of uh, oppressed Uyghur Muslims uh-huh. in Xinjiang. So I think that's that's established. That's a that's a that's a fact yeah. that there there are Uyghurs in radical movements. But that's not to say that. Uyghurs are extremists. Like all Uyghurs are extremists, or that right. all Uyghurs are terrorists, of course. Um, or even that all Uyghurs are separatists. Which is interesting in, in that, like I think sometimes it's not even helpful to have a Western media narrative that portrays Uyghurs and people in Xinjiang as inevitably like everybody there restive. wants to be separate. Right. They want to have their own state. Yeah, rest the rest of the state of mm. Xinjiang. <laughs> and or because when I spent time there, I found I mean that. I mean, Uyghurs are really diverse, and there's a big diversity in how things are, even especially most pointedly between North and South Xinjiang. Mm. So people will say Nanjiang, Beijing is really different. Like, and a lot of Han people will say, "Don't go to Southern Xinjiang because it's a majority Uyghur area, and it's like you know, it's it's more it's more of a dangerous place." But I mean, one thing I want to say was that there are a lot of Uyghurs who don't want to have their own separate country. Like, they don't they don't want to break off, but they want to live. You know, they want to live in dignity, and they want to be treated as they want to have, how do I say this? <laughs> they want to not feel like they're being monitored and occupied uh, right. and treated as a terror threat. So, I mean, I think for the useful way for me to look at it, and I also thought about it a lot, like how am I going to write about this in a positive way, not positive way, but in a helpful way, mm-hmm. is is to think about, okay, given that, yes, there there is a link, or at least there's a link insofar as, okay, there are there are Uyghur people <laughs> who, are, who are in the radical groups. How, how does the, the Chinese state response what is the response first of all and then secondly is it how does it does it exacerbate the problem or is it going to help and if you know like if if the extremist groups are putting out material that are basically saying you know we need to fight back because this state is oppressive and people are suffering and and there's big injustice and occupation oppression here then will will you know a very heavy 
security crackdown help like help fight their narrative or is it only going to play right into their hands and do exactly like it's like it's like they're saying you're the bad guy and you're doing bad things and then the chinese state is doing exactly what they're saying and it it kind of it just strengthens their appeal so alice can you give us a sense of the extent of the militarization that's ongoing now in xinjiang and the sort of the new approaches to policing that we're seeing there what did you see when you were there and uh, how uh, how do things look? Um, so I was there twice in the last year. I spent a week or so in October, no, October 2015, actually. And then last year in the summer, around Ramadan, I spent about two weeks as well in Urumqi and then down around southern Xinjiang. First thing, like when you go to northern Xinjiang, when you go to Ulumuchi, it just seems like another Chinese city. <laughs> like really, it, mm. it's... Uh, it's actually majority Han now, and you know it's like smoggy, and you see all the same stores that you see everywhere else. <laughs> and, and I mean, one big striking difference that I just thought my first impression of Urumqi was that when we were driving around, every time we, I was driving around, and at every single, every time I stopped uh, at a uh, what do you call it stoplight, yeah. whatever, there would be flashes. Yeah, every intersection there were fla- there were camera flashes at every intersection, and that's what I remembered the most um, from my first night. I was like, what? Because there's cameras at every intersection, they're taking pictures constantly of everything and everyone just to stay in control. And I think, and, and I talked to my friends who were there and they were saying that this implemented after 2009 right. um, mm. because, you know, security, mm. <laughs> security is a big thing. And people, people there also want it. <laughs> they want security and they don't want rights and they don't want, they don't want people to be attacking each other and fighting. If you go to places in the South, like... Hotian yeah. and yeah, or Hotan. It's confusing too because every every place has two names. There's like a Uyghur name and a Chinese name, right. and then probably just the English name, which is <laughs> like a weird right. pronunciation. So Hotan, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Hotan, and and if you go through kind of uh, these kind of oasis towns in the south, ending up in Kashgar, mm. they're very very militarized and. Basically, there's a heavy security presence. So basically, when you're driving or even when you're walking around, you'll see armed personnel carriers. You'll see soldiers mm. um, with big guns standing around. There'll be policemen. And typically, if if you're a Han Chinese person, you just like no one's going to say anything to you. But if you're a Uyghur, you'll be getting checked all the time. <laughs> and, I, and I noticed this because... Uh, I had a Uyghur translator with me and, and a driver. And for example, in Hotian, we went to this this night market, which they said the government had moved from a mostly Uyghur area to a mostly Han area, like newly migrated Han people. And, and they had a night market there and it was like, oh, we have Uyghur people and Han people who are like selling food. Uh, but then there's these po- the police or these guys with uh, like the SWAT team. I don't know. There's there's yeah. these security guys standing all around the night market, and when you approach it, they stop all the Uyghurs, you know, and they stop them and they say, "Give me your give me your ID, give me your phone." They look through their phones just to check for things. Oh, wow. um, the Han people the Han people are all waved through, wow. <laughs> and it was interesting because some of the police are <laughs> some of the police are Uyghur police. Um, they're they're yeah, hired. I remember um, that in your reporting, they had this sort of like apologetically saying, "Sorry, you know, we have to do this." It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I asked him like, "What were you saying?" And then my translator told me, "He's like, oh, that guy was just telling me like, sorry, we just we have to meet a quota of like how many oh, people right, we right, check every quota. day. So, <laughs> so we're checking, we're making, we're meeting this quota. And then and then when you're driving around like between towns, there are many, there are multiple checkpoints where you know. You stop, they search your car, you get off, you walk through this thing where you show them your ID, they pat you down. Wow. Uh, they didn't pat me down, they did, they did for the Uyghurs. <laughs> it's a place where, <laughs> I don't know, on the one hand, I know the Chinese government is trying hard to increase tourism and mm. be like, everybody come, like, <laughs> Xinjiang is so amazing, everybody can sing and dance here, so Ooh. colorful. <laughs> oh <boy>. um, <laughs> <laughs> but also just, yeah, it's just, there's really obvious surveillance and control everywhere. Mm. Um, so people will say, oh, it's really... I guess it is really safe. Like nothing's going to happen to you because every, every you're being you're being watched everywhere you go. Sure. <laughs> um, Alice, you, you said but, that you were there yeah. uh, during Ramadan, actually, and uh, which which yeah. um, prompts me to ask. You know, we hear a lot about actual policies about uh, religious practices. For example, university students and government officials not being allowed to take part uh, in the Ramadan yeah. fast. <laughs> it's not really clear to me I, at, low, uh, at what level of government these policies are actually coming from. I mean, is this local? Government is central, yeah. uh, and it's not really clear to me how strictly they're enforced. And yeah, yeah maybe you can give us a sense of a better sense for what's okay. what's really going on on the ground there. Yeah, 
I think everything is very strictly enforced in Xinjiang, and I think religious policies they come they come from you know the central uh-huh. central authorities, mm. and then in other places in China, it's up to the local imp- interpretation. Because I saw variants in how mm-hmm. how strictly, for example, like in, in some places in in Ningxia, Gansu, you go, you see all these informal. Um, Madrasas, like informal religious schools, and lots of kids attending, and nobody cares. That could never happen in Xinjiang. Right. I think. Right. I think. I think in Xinjiang, it's it, it's it's a top priority to ensure that everything is strictly enforced. So, for example, the thing about Ramadan, it's not that Ramadan is prohibited, but it's that if you are uh, working in any kind of uh, government capacity or in civil service, or your student, your teacher, whatever. Um, like you, your hours don't change. You have to go. You have to go to work at the same time, and and sometimes, well, this I cannot, I can't prove. But then there are people tell stories about like, oh, you, they force you to eat. Like you have to, you have to eat. And so uh-huh. I mean, I I don't understand like how they force you. I I do yeah. know that like <laughs> no tubes. For, like the yeah, <laughs> the things that are really really obviously enforced in Xinjiang is there are signs everywhere. If you go to a park, for example, there'll be a big sign in the front that says that that shows you everything that you're not allowed to wear or or everything about your outward appearance that's not allowed. So no beards, no scarves. No, no hijab of any kind, no shirts with crescent moons or any kind of symbol like that on it. And it shows you like, these are the bad things and these are the good things. And the good things are like, you know, where you can wear a colorful dress and you should be, you know, you should, like, there's actually a colorful dress on the sign. <laughs> um, and then there are also rules. Yeah. And the and those are, they're really strictly enforced. Uh, you're also, there is no entrance to religious sites for anybody under the age of 18. Huh. Uh, so... No, kids can't. You're not supposed to go to mosques. You're not supposed to go to anything. I went to visit a university in Kashgar. I remember, and I was with two uh, Uyghur girls, and yeah, they were wearing his. They were they were wearing hijab outside, but they took it off as soon as they walked into the campus because you're mm. not allowed to have that there. Like they didn't. I mean, they, like they don't want to, but they have to. Uh, how, how much mm. is uh, the resentment? I mean, is is this something that that people really uh, seem to to resent pretty ferociously, or have they acquiesced in it? I mean, people acquiesce because they have to. Ah, I see. They have no choice. Mm. So, the thing about Xinjiang is just everybody is very scared. Everybody's very paranoid. Yeah. Um, especially Uyghurs, and especially it's the only place I, I've ever reported where I felt that my personal, like my background and, and my face, were making me less trustworthy. And that's interesting because usually everywhere I go in the world, I'm just you know harmless Chinese person. <laughs> but in Xinjiang, it was like they couldn't trust me because they they're like you're you're Either a Chinese person, the, like, yeah, you're Han. Yeah, even though I was like, oh, I'm Taiwanese American, <laughs> whatever. They don't care. So the thing is, sometimes like people that I got to know better, they would tell me like, and, and also also not just them, but everybody everybody else who lives in Xinjiang, you know, the Hui who live in Xinjiang, mm. the Han, the foreigners, other people. Like it's it's like everybody. It, there's a really clear discrepancy in how Uyghurs are being treated, and yeah. and Uyghurs don't like it. Of course, they don't like it because <laughs> it's, it's yeah. their home, <laughs> and they're being treated as second class. Yeah. The, the treatment's very different, and of course, in in in, in things like uh, even something as simple as traveling or finding yeah. lodging, you know, you, you experience a lot of prejudice here, and and maybe most importantly in terms of the educational and and employment opportunities that you face. You know, Tianjie, maybe you can talk a little bit about that, um, about how difficult it has been for, for, uh, for, for Uyghurs to, who even want to assimilate to manage to assimilate. I think, based on what I've read, I think the language is probably one of the big barriers. And yeah. some of, actually, some of the criticism was directed at the party for not kind of enforcing a, 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 a assimilation policy during particularly, I think, the 1980s, 1990s. And at that time, the policy was made to sort of respect, right, uh, cultural diversity and and, and, and not sort of uh, forcing uh, Uyghur youth, right, to actually uh, study Mandarin. But now this, this seems to be a barrier, right, for them to actually get access to to jobs and and has created this kind of alienating factor I think in the economy and I think a lot of some of the more serious analysis I think point this right to or point the the unrestness in Xinjiang uh, and, and some of the ethnicity areas to this dropping uh, employment rate mm. uh, particularly of the the youth mm. and some of them blame that to the inability basically to assimilate them particularly I think in terms of language. Yeah. Uh, very, very interesting and uh, difficult in, indeed. 
a lot of Chinese people who push back against this narrative of, you know, Uyghurs are treated differently, they'll say, no, but they have, you know, they get extra points on Gaokao, <laughs> and, uh, hmm. and they have all these favorable policies, right. yeah, yeah, and yeah. the government you is really, really this. helping them, but I just... Mm. I think just on on the ground, the reality is often they're very far behind. And I think sometimes it's it may not even be a, so much of an ethnic thing as it is a kind of economic and rural versus urban thing. In that in southern Xinjiang, especially, it's a very rural area, mm. and a lot of people, mm. a lot of Uyghurs there, they're farmers, um, and they're just like simple farmers. And actually, I think some of the problems happening there are really similar to things that happen in the rest of China: uh, really rapid urbanization and migration. Mm-hmm. And what happened there is. What happens in, in a lot of villages there is that a lot of Han migrants are coming in, and the government is saying we want to develop Xinjiang. So uh, basically, you farmers here, like, <laughs> go away or like you know move to this other place, give us your land, and we're going to develop. We're going to develop really fast. It's one belt, one road. It's time to you know whatever do do our big economic plan. <laughs> um, and a lot of farmers they're left behind, and they they cannot compete in the economy. They don't have language. All they know how to do is agriculture, and they're basically being pushed out economically. And I think. It's something that has happened in other parts of China before, but in Xinjiang, it's particularly explosive because it also happens to be that the people who are benefiting and are reaping the you know the, the good parts of the development happen to also be Han Chinese, and the people a lot of people who are losing out are this ethnic minority that then also has a, is suffering a security crackdown, and then also has all this like Islamophobia and ethnic lines and blah blah blah. So then it just becomes really explosive. But sometimes some of the problems they're actually I think urbanization and migration problems. So it's just something something to point out, which I, I hadn't really heard that much about before. Yeah, absolutely. Ada, I mean, uh, as you, both of us, I could probably go on for, for a long time talking about this topic, <laughs> but uh, uh, I want to first, uh, you know, we, we need to move on to recommendations. So Alice, Sue, and Matianjia, thanks so much to both of you for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, stick around with us and make a recommendation for our listeners, won't you? So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. If you like the Seneca Podcast, by all means, go leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps and it means an awful lot to us. So now on to recommendations, Ada, uh, let's start with you. What do you have for us this week? So um, my recommendation is something that has uh, nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with China. And it is a wonderful no, book see, called... The nothing to do with China doesn't surprise me, but the nothing to do with politics does not sound like you, Ada. Um, called, it's called Lab Girl. And it's ah. by uh, Hope Jaren. And it is an autobiography of a woman who is an, actually a very renowned geobiologist. And she basically uh, brings to the world of geobiology what Oliver Sacks brought to the world of neuroscience. So he's a, she's a wonderful writer, and you will never look at a tree the same way again. That is my recommendation. Hope, uh, Lab Girl by Hope Jaren. Oh, great. Yeah, that sounds like a really good one. So what about you, Tianjia? What do you have for us this week? Um, my recommendation today, I think, is related to the topic. Uh, I have been reading a book called The Silk Roads, uh, A New History of the World uh, by a Oxford uh, historian called Peter Frankopan. Mm. So oh, yeah, yeah. he, he basically book, yeah. uh, re-writ- he, he rewrites uh, world history um, centering around the, the places where we now call Central Asia or Middle mm. East. right? And he, he is arguing that basically that's where the center of history has been for millennials, right? Um, and it's a fascinating book and his his ability to to draw on original materials across the region, including Chinese materials, is is also um, highly, uh, uh, like, superb. And uh, the, the one thing about the book is that he, he his depiction of the, the mm. development of religion, right, across those trade routes and how they reshape each other in their competition with each other in trying to winning communities around those trade routes is fascinating. Huh. Yeah. That, that's, re- no, that's really interesting. Yeah, that, that'll pair well with a, a book that I recommended some years ago called uh, the, I think it was called like the Central Asian Enlightenment or something like that. Uh, it was a writer named Frederick Starr uh, who, who writes about, you know, the incredible intellectual fertility of, of the Silk Road cities like Samarkand and Bukhara. Uh, in, you know, or, or especially in like the 10th and 11th centuries. Amazing stuff. Great. Uh, what about you, Alice? What do you have for us? 
Okay, <laughs> I have one that I actually just found out about a few days ago because um, you know about the new electronics ban, uh, how you can't fire yeah. laptops uh, to the U.S. directly from the Middle East. So I've been looking up, <laughs> I was thinking about ways to uh, circumvent that and looking at different kinds of layovers that I could take. <laughs> and I found out about this program <laughs> with Iceland Air and it's called you know, Iceland Air Stopover Program. So basically, if you book flights, uh, international flights with a layover in Iceland, uh, they'll help, they'll allow you to extend your layover for a few days, I think up to a week for free. Um, you can just decide to stay in Iceland longer. And if you do that, they'll they have a buddy system where apparently Iceland Air they'll give you a buddy uh who is a staff member of Iceland Air and you can get a food buddy or a culture buddy or an adventure buddy and basically they'll just take you around and show you Iceland oh, wow. um that's awesome they, yeah and and, and it'll, yeah it's it's all free I think and it's how I plan to travel to America <laughs> next time oh, that's, that's, that's um yeah. It's with an Iceland air stopover. That's great. So. <laughs> that is that's an excellent recommendation. I, I mean, <laughs> next time I, I cross the Atlantic the other way, I may think about doing that. Great, great recommendation. Yeah. And I am going to recommend a, a book called The Orphan Master's Son by Adam Johnson. It may actually have been recommended on the show before. Uh, but it's a novel set in North Korea. Uh, I've been reading a lot, a lot about North Korea, you know, because of, of you know, well, what we're facing right now. Uh, I was actually reading the book on the flight over from uh, to, from the states to Shanghai. I'm about two thirds of the way through with it. It's completely amazing. Um, it's about five years old now. It won basically every literary mm. prize that you've got out there. I mean, it won, the, won the Pulitzer, it won a uh, National Book Award, and a bunch of other stuff. So you, many of you will have already read it. Uh, I'm very glad that it's going to keep me company for the long flight back uh, from Shanghai tomorrow. A uh, great book. Um, just just a fascinating look inside uh, the Hermit Kingdom. So, hey, thanks again to, to both of you for, for joining us, and great to have you back on the show, Ada. Uh, we thanks for having me. We look forward to talking Thank to you, you guys again. Uh, I cannot, let me Thank remind you. everyone to check out the Pulitzer Center. Uh, we'll, we'll make a, a link to that, to a fine collection of six or seven stories uh, that Alice did last year. Uh, make sure to check them all out. Every single one of them is worth a good read. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks to David Moser. Say hi, David. Can you shout hi into a microphone there? He's he's kowtowing. Okay, he's kowtowing. All right. Uh, so special thanks. I'm to him. Uh, his abundant talents are being squandered this week as he's playing the humble role of recordist. But uh, we'll have him again on the show properly. Uh, also thanks to Anla Chang and Sarai Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Sinica at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/sinicapodcast and follow us on Twitter at Sinica Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.